Hello, it's Peter here and welcome to Travels Through Time. Today we have a favourite episode from our archive for you. It's me talking to one of the world's great historical novelists, Bernard Cornwell. He takes me back to 1815, the year of the Battle of Waterloo. Here's a challenge. Find your most historically illiterate friend and ask them to name three great battles. The chances are... The Battle of Waterloo will be one of them. Fought 200 years ago on the fields of modern day Belgium, Waterloo brought two colossal figures in Western history together. Napoleon Bonaparte and the Duke of Wellington. The two were both outstanding military commanders in very different ways. And until that Sunday, the 18th of June 1815, they had never met before in battle. Today we have the best possible guest who'll take us back to survey the battlefield in three fascinating scenes. Bernard Cornwell is one of the world's great historical novelists. Over the past 40 years, he's brought the past back to vivid, dramatic life in a thrilling sequence of books that have sold in their millions. These books started, of course, in 1981 with a story that introduced readers to that fearless, wayward soldier, Richard Sharp. Well, after a little hiatus, I'm pleased to report that Sharp is returning in a new novel which will be released just this week. Readers will catch up with Sharp in the aftermath of the Battle of Waterloo, the battle that I spoke to Bernard about just the other day. It's my great pleasure to say welcome Bernard Cornwell to the podcast. Today you're going to take us back to a decisive moment in world history. But first of all, let's start off with that brilliant, fearless soldier, Richard Sharp. I think it's, I don't know, about 2006 when you wrote the last of the Sharp series. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And you've uh, been very busy with deeper historical events since then. But I, wa- I really wanted to ask you, first of all, this new novel's a cause of celebration for readers, of course. But how was it for you? Did you find Sharp lurking in your imagination just as ever? Or was he strangely altered after these years? Oh, he's been lurking there forever, to be true. I always thought I'd like to write another Sharp book. And he never left me. Um, I hear his voice in my head about walking the dog, only his voice is now Sean Bean's voice. So in many ways, it was, I won't say it was easy because no book is easy, but it was a pleasure um, starting to write him because he sort of sprang back into life straight away. Was it a bit like going out to dinner with an old friend that you kind of eased into it rather quickly or... I don't know. I suppose the last year has been strange in so many different ways and whether that affected your writing or not, I don't know. But um, yeah, I, I'm just interested in this idea of the author and his character and the, the closeness and the intimacy of that relationship. It's very close and very odd. I mean, I think I'm I'm obviously very fond of Sharp and always have been. I'm not sure if he's fond of me, but that's another, another matter. And he's there. I mean, literally walking the dog. I'd suddenly hear him talking to me. Um, I hear... And whenever I'm writing a book, I hear the characters having conversations in my head, often nothing to do with the book, which is a good thing, because it obviously means that the characters have got some kind of life of their own. And Sean had a huge effect on Sharp in the sense that from the moment I first saw Sean Bean playing Sharp, I heard his voice. And I still do hear Sean's voice whenever I think of Sharp. Sharp's great fictional contemporary, of course, is Captain Jack Aubrey, who's busy on the waves as Sharp's busy on land. I know you've said elsewhere that Patrick O'Brien and his writing in particular has been an inspiration for you um, from the beginning. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to ask you a little bit about that, because um, these great fictional series running in parallel, um, the Aubrey Maturin series and the Sharp ones, is kind of an interesting idea to me. Has O'Brien been a big influence on you? I don't know if he's been that much of an influence because um, I'd started Sharp long before Jack Aubrey came along. And we wrote very, very differently. Patrick O'Brien once said somewhat disparagingly that Forrester and I had too much story and not enough, I think, was it real life? I always admired O'Brien's extraordinary grip of the period and 
how that was reflected through the books. But I'm not going to make any apologies for having too much story. Indeed, I feel very flattered that he compared me to Forrester. So one thing, I don't want to get too deeply into Sharp's Assassin, which is the novel at the moment. We will loop back to talk about it shortly. But um, with regards to historical detail, there's one thing that I can't resist asking you about right at the beginning. And this is the uh, this is something which pops up on page 74 of the finished book. And this is the Halifax guillotine. And I was quite amused by this because the guillotine, I thought, was the most quintessentially French invention in the world. But you point out that the Yorkshiremen, well, those of Yorkshire, got there first. Could you say anything about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I was rather astonished to discover it, too. But in fact, there were a number of guillotines in Europe um, before Dr. Guillotine invented his horrible machine. But there was one in Halifax. And it was evidently there in medieval times. And I think it was last used in the 17th century, but it stayed there for quite a long time. I'm not sure of this, but I think there's a, a memorial in Halifax showing where it was. But, oh, no, we were way ahead of the French. We had a guillotine before they did. Yeah, and I thought there was almost something slightly comic about but I mean, it's not obviously <laughs> a machine which inspires massive <laughs> comedy, but the... The way that you wrote of a guillotining in uh, in the same section of the novel um, is, I suppose, faintly comic. You have a, a very nasty character, I think it's fair to say, who is dispatched on a machine that he was playing with himself. And there's just that little flutter towards the end of his life after the machine has done his job when he looks up reproachfully. And I thought, well, it's a nice bit of writing. Well, evidently they did. I mean, there are a number of um, memoirs which say that after the guillotine had done its work, the, the victim's head still showed sort of flickers of life. I mean, obviously they were not alive, but um, I don't know, there must be some kind of electrical discharge in the nerves or something. It's all rather gruesome, but of course it fascinated Sharp. I wasn't even sure whether I really wanted him to use the guillotine, but of course he insisted on doing it, but he would. <laughs> Exactly. So you're back in this late 18th, early 19th century period, which we um, as historians think of as the end of the long 18th century, of course. Um, is it quite nice to be back? Are you enjoying this? After oh, I did enjoy it. Yes. I mean, I suppose I've spent so long there earlier in my career, but it was very nice to go back to it. And I had written the nonfiction book on Waterloo, which had sort of, I certainly think that made me want to go back to Sharp again. But I had to finish Uhtred's story first. Mm. OK, well, let's get into the history because we've got a fair bit to get to. It's rich, it's resonant, but it's a little bit complex. So let me begin by asking you the question that I always throw at guests who come on this podcast, which is, Bernard Cornwell, if you could travel back through time by some mysterious agency, which calendar year would you pick to visit? Well, I'm going to pick 1815, um, simply because so much happened and there are still gaps in our knowledge of what exactly did happen. So it'd be very nice to be back there, but I want to take penicillin with me, please. <laughs> That's probably a wise, wise move. Let's set the scene 1815. We're going to look in particular at the, um, the political picture in Europe, um, which has been confused for so long but where have we got to in the story by the year let's say the start of january first of january 1815 what's going on well the congress of vienna is still dithering and dancing um i think most of europe believes that napoleon is now safely locked away in the island of elba and he won't come back and they're trying to redraw the map the political map of europe and in many ways to restore the ancien regime so it's a period of, I won't say relaxation, but I think they are relaxed. All the great powers are in Vienna and they're talking and they're arguing. Um, and what they're arguing about is how to make sure the French never come back and cause that much trouble again. And of course, the central figure of this is Napoleon himself. There's a great, there's a great quote which is attributed to him when he was um, about to disembark on a I think a, a naval ship for 
Elba, which is the place he'd chosen um, to have his exile. And he said, um, let me see, only the dead never come back, which is a kind of sentence which I think probably appeals to a novelist because it always suggests a sequel, of course. Um, was it wise to put Napoleon on Elba? and hope for the best or were they really really um making a big problem for themselves well they didn't know it but of course it wasn't wise and they were making a big problem for themselves and the problem was confounded by the fact that the new french government under louis the 18th had promised to pay him uh, money which they had not paid so he's on elba he's running out of money he's still as ambitious as ever um the british are keeping an eye on him but the guy in charge of that evidently leaves Elbert, I'm pretty sure to meet his mistress in Leghorn. Um, and when that ship is away, of course, Napoleon makes his escape. Are the French um, not absolutely worn out by Napoleon and his insatiable appetite for, um, for military affairs by this point? There's, um, yes, they are, but, but they also begin to miss him. Um, what they miss is la gloire, the glory. And the early months of Louis XVIII's administration sees poverty, sees the price of bread rise, sees hunger. And the French look back at Napoleon and think, well, he led us to greatness. So there is, in fact, an appetite for his return. And women would wear violets as a little, it was a symbol of Napoleon, violet. Um, so when he came back, in fact, he was greeted very warmly indeed. And people thought this was a restoration of maybe France's greatness. Yeah, it's, it's quite delicately contradictory, isn't it? Because at one point I fished out of um, a book on Napoleon, a quotation from a survivor of the Battle of Chaumont, I think it was. And he said, if Bonaparte had reigned longer, he would have murdered all the world. And then he would have made war on all of the animals, which is um, <laughs> a nice voice from beneath. But I think it's same... true. Um, I mean, his, his hero was Alexander the Great. Um, I think Napoleon was, he was an extraordinarily clever man, and a very, very intelligent man and a very good administrator. But he got bored easily. And the one activity that didn't bore him was warfare. And I think he loved showing how clever he was and, how effective he could be. Um, General Lee of the Confederate Army in America said at the Battle of Fredericksburg, it is good that war is so awful or we'd love it too much. Well, Napoleon loved war. Whatever happened, if you, Napoleon got back in charge of France, um, he would go back to war because it was the one activity which I think didn't bore him. Mm. There's um, a new book about Napoleon and his gardens by a British historian called Ruth Skirt I was reading recently and she made the the argument that if um that if he hadn't been the finest military generation uh, uh, general of his generation or indeed many many other generations he'd have probably been a scientist do you have any response to that um it's a great pity you didn't read science isn't it <laughs> I think so well let's kind of let's um let's move him from the island of Elba, which is off the coast of Italy, to Belgium, where he finds himself in mid-June. His old midsummer day comes on. What um, what route did he get there? And can you just, I know this is talked about as the hundred days. Could you maybe sketch it for us, please? Well, he gets back to Paris, where he's welcomed. Um, and... All his old, almost all his old comrades returned to him. I mean, the most famous one being Marshal Ney, who'd been sent to capture him, but instead Ney went over to his side. And he immediately begins to raise an army. Um, and in fact, it's a very, very good army because it's full of veterans. And by late spring, he's got armies on all the frontiers guarding the against the Austrians, the Russians, the Prussians. And he has his own army of the north, which he plans to take north um, into Belgium. So he's done extraordinarily well. He's raised an army, he's equipped the army, he's found the horses he needs. 
And in many, many historians believe this was the best army he ever led. Um, I mean, that's arguable. It's possible that the Grand Army of 1805 was, was better, but it's certainly a very, very good army, packed with veterans, with lots of experience and with very good material. And he's got, um, it, it, I suppose this would be um, maybe an overstatement, but it is almost Napoleon versus everyone at this point, isn't it? It is. It he's, absolutely is. And his only real option is to defeat separately all these various armies which are kind of circling about him, the Prussians, the British and so on. Which he's done before. I mean, his famous campaign of 1814 was a display of absolute brilliance and movement. And although in the end he lost that, um, he was simply overwhelmed by numbers. But yes, I mean, you're quite right. His, his strategy is to defeat the enemy in detail. I split them up and defeat them one at a time. And he's very confident that he can do that. And he moves um, northeast of Paris and he moves up into the area of the Netherlands, um, modern day Belgium. And this is, of course, the site of a very significant French victory during the, the terror early on. And I know there's some su- suggestion that Napoleon is thinking um, I think that is called the Battle of Fleury or something like Fleury, that. Fleury, yeah. Yeah, in 1794, which came at just the time that it was needed to establish the Revolutionary French Republic, as it then was. Um, do you think that historical parallel is playing in his mind at all, or do you think he's just going where the armies are? Is it more Occam's razor? He's going where the armies are. Um, the two closest enemy armies to France at this time are Wellington's army, which is an Anglo-Dutch army, and Blücher with the Prussians. And Napoleon knows where they are. and He knows they're spread out across an enormously wide area. And the reason for that is that purely logistics, that these guys have to have supplies. Once you concentrate the army, it becomes much more difficult to feed them. And his ambition is to split them split them in two so they can't help each other, defeat one and then defeat the other. Um, and I, I, that was his strategy and it was very, very successful. And he moves with incredible speed. And there's a prelude um, to the Battle of Waterloo, which we'll get to in a moment, a few days before when he faces the Prussians themselves. Yeah, I mean, what he does is he goes straight up the road towards Brussels in a sense, hitting the hinge between the two armies. He then swerves off to the right and meets Blücher at Ligny. Um, meanwhile, he sends Marshal Ney to confront Wellington at a place called Catrebras. And there are two battles. First, the Battle of Ligny, which Napoleon wins, and the Battle of Catrebras, which is a desperately close-run thing, which Wellington wins. But he's, what Napoleon has done, he has split them. The Prussians have gone off to the east and the British are, as it were, pinned in front of Brussels. So having defeated Blücher, he's now going to turn his attention to Wellington. So in, in very short order, we've arrived at this date, which is Sunday, June 18th of 1815, which is the one that we're going to look at. And this, of course, is the date of the Battle of Waterloo. Where would you like to go to for your first of three scenes, please? Well, I'm going to be at the elm tree at the crossroads at the height of the ridge which Wellington was defending. And Wellington is waiting there. He has 68,000 men and 156 guns. He knows Napoleon is about three quarters of a mile away on another ridge with more men and more guns, far more guns. But Wellington is content to wait. He knows that this is going to be a defensive battle. And the reason it's a defensive battle is that he simply wants to give Blücher time to join him. And it's incredibly important to understand that. What was Wellington's ambition that day was simply to hold his position long enough to let the Prussians come in on the French right flank. And there's a lot of, one of the unknowns about this is exactly when did the battle start? I mean, we get People saying it started at 11 o'clock in the morning, others put it back as late as 1 o'clock in the afternoon. The important thing is it was late. Um, Napoleon and Wellington had been in that position all night. It had been a dreadful night. It poured with rain, just poured and poured and poured. Both armies are miserable as hell. 
they haven't had enough to eat. They're soaked through. Um, the battlefield is soaked. Napoleon once said, ask me for anything except time. Space I can recover. Time, never. Um, and if you like, the very first big mistake of the battle for Napoleon is he waited. He waited to start it. He should have gone much earlier. If he'd gone earlier, say, eight or nine o'clock in the morning, he probably might have won. But he waits. And I chose 11 o'clock because that seems to be by consensus about the time that the battle began. So there we are at the elm tree, very close to Wellington and his aide-de-camp, watching this enemy army on the far hillside. Well, so much here to ask you about because I think this is um, a correct statement. This is the first time that Napoleon and Wellington have met in battle, isn't it? Is it is. I mean, this is like the Wimbledon final. I mean, everybody in Europe regards Napoleon as the supreme general of his time, but Wellington has never been defeated. And Wellington is also plainly a very, very fine general. So, yeah, this is this, this is the first and only time the two will meet in battle. Now, Napoleon himself is very confident um, in his memoirs. He wrote, I returned to my headquarters well satisfied with the great error the enemy commander was making. The English oligarchy would be overthrown. And to another officer, he said, ah, now I've got them, those English. And when he talked to his generals that morning and said, what should I expect from a British army led by Wellington? They all offered caution um, and said, look, they're very, very good. And he retorted, because you've been beaten by Wellington, you consider him to be a good general. And now I tell you that Wellington is a bad general. The English are bad soldiers and this affair will be over before lunch. So he's very, very confident. Now, Wellington, I don't think, was nearly as confident. He leads an army of about 68,000 men, but only about 33,000 of those were British. He had absolute confidence in his British infantry, especially. He'd led them through the Peninsular War. He knew what they were capable of, but that he didn't have enough of them. And the rest of the army was made up by Dutch, and many of those Dutchmen had actually fought for Napoleon in the previous two decades. And some of them had already deserted and others would desert during the battle. Um, so he was certainly worried, although he didn't let on that. I mean, he actually at one point said to somebody that he would teach Napoleon a lesson that morning. So I think Wellington is certainly nervous because he knows what he's up against. And he's very proud of the fact he's never lost a battle. But I mean, you know, here he is in the biggest run of his career against the greatest general of his time. So what he's worried about, he's not too worried about Napoleon making a head-on attack. In fact, that's what he hopes he will do. He's worried that Napoleon will move around his right flank, Wellington's right flank, and to protect against that, he's put 17,000 men in a village way off to, to the west. So he hasn't even got his full army. And among those 17,000 men include a lot of his fine British troops who are there to guard against a big outflanking movement by Napoleon. So I think Wellington is probably anything but confident, while Napoleon himself is full of confidence. So Wellington himself is someone you've had to write about. He appears in the latest novel, of course. So he's a, he's a character that's appeared in your fiction. You've had to get inside his head. It's worth asking you a little bit about his character, which I know is a massive question. But do you find him as daunting as his reputation, the Iron Duke that we think of? Is that a kind of accurate or is it a two-dimensional portrait? Of him? No, he's, he's totally daunting. He's an extraordinary man. He's come up right from the right through the ranks of the army. I mean, from, as an officer, he's, he's very good at his trade. He doesn't love the trade, which is quite important. Napoleon loves the trade. Wellington, you always get the impression, is a soldier by necessity, but he has far more sympathy than Napoleon for, for the effects of warfare. He can be very cold. I mean, I think men found him quite tricky to deal with. The interesting thing about Wellington is that all the best stories about him come from women because he loved women. Um, and was very susceptible to beautiful women. And he talked to them. Um, after his military career was over, it was very hard to get Wellington to talk about it at all. Um, but women could get him to do that. And some of our best stories come from, from, from women. But certainly, I mean, he also he hated authors. 
I mean, if I'm going to go back there, I don't want him to know that I'm an author. And he said, I mean, he dismissed people who asked him to tell them about the Battle of Waterloo. He said, it's impossible to tell the story of a battle. You might as well try and write the history of a ball, meaning a dance. You know, there's just too much going on that no one can remember exactly what happened. And that's part of the reason why we don't really know as much as we'd like to know about the Battle of Waterloo. But you touch on something there, which is um, a point I wanted to bring out, because there you are by your elm tree. I suppose this visually must have been the absolute feast of feasts, because you're looking over an expanse of space filled with a kind of regularity of the various divisions and battalions and so on. The armies arranged across their um you know stations and one of the things that people also associate with this era which um is inescapable is the kind of glamour of course that most iconic of images is of the bicorn hat and silhouette of napoleon anyone in the world would be able to say oh that's napoleon but beyond that there is such a kind of richness to the costume that would be spread out right before you could you explain what, what that would be like at all? Well, it would be, if you're in the British line, it's meant to be frightening. Um, that morning, very early that morning, long before he opened the battle, Napoleon paraded his troops along the ridge where the La Belle Alliance, which is the ridge facing the, the, the ridge where the elm tree is. And it was deliberate in an attempt to overawe his enemy um, with these massive, arrays of uniformed men, um, especially the cavalry. Um, when the cavalry came to make their great attack, a British officer called them the most beautiful troops in the world. And they're in wonderfully gaudy uniforms. The cuirassiers are wearing breastplates and steel helmets. I mean, they look gorgeous, um, but all that gorgeousness is about to be beaten down into blood and mud, which is a horrible thought. Um, the British looked much less gorgeous. Um, they had their famous red coats, but the red coats, the dye tended to leak, especially in the rain, and they'd just gone through 24 hours of sodden rain. Um, the riflemen were in their dark green, which was a very sensible colour for them. Uh, and when the Brits mended their uniforms, they tended to use local cloth, which was usually brown, so they looked a rather patchwork of pale red and brown. Um, they would have looked very, very, I don't know, just ragged compared to the glory of the French. And Napoleon was so confident that he would get to Brussels that night, or at least by the following morning, that he'd ordered, for instance, the Imperial Guard to carry their great plumes. They were red plumes that they attached to their shakos. And they were normally carried in a cardboard tube, but evidently they were told to put them on and wear them. So... A lot of soldiers remembered this sort of parade and how in the middle of it, in the middle of the sort of rain, a shaft of sunlight came through and lit the French ridge with all this glory arrayed in front of them. Such an image. Well, let's move the battle into progress. Where would you like to move on next, please? Well, we're there at the very beginning. Uh, I'd like to be at the beginning because I've can tell what time the battle started. Let's guess it starts at 10 after 11. And it starts with a massive cannonade. I mean, Napoleon was an artilleryman. Uh, he called his guns his beautiful daughters. And he's arrayed 80 of his 252 guns into a massive battery, which is going to hammer the left of Wellington's line. Um, and this would have been quite terrifying. I mean, 80 big guns bellowing away. Wellington, in a sense, was ready for this because he was a master of using what's called the reverse slope, which is putting his men on the backside of the hill so that the enemy can't see them and then getting them to lie down so that a lot of the shots would go over their heads and very few would actually land among them. So Wellington has begun as he wants with his men protected by the hill. Um, and Napoleon, meanwhile, has let loose this enormous battery hoping that it will shatter the British lines, which he will then follow up with an enormous infantry attack. So all of this is going to happen before lunch. 
and it would just be wonderful to see exactly what it does when it does happen and when it happens. Uh, we can get some timings right. Mm. It's such a kind of paradox, isn't it, that you have an event so grand and yet it's kind of at the same time got an elusive quality to it. So, yeah, to go back with probably um, some paper and a pencil and <laughs> to, to be a proper on-the-spot reporter would be quite satisfying. It would be very satisfying indeed. Um, and of course, we'd have the advantage of knowing what was about to happen. Um, and what was about to happen was an enormous infantry attack by Derlon's corps, about 18,000 Frenchmen crossing the valley. Um, and they had a very hard time of it because the valley was filled with crops of rye. And rye in those days grew very, very tall. I mean, as tall as a man. So they're pushing through those. Um, the ground beneath is sodden. It's an incredibly hard journey. Meanwhile, Wellington's guns are shooting at them, his cannon, and doing a horrible amount of damage to them. But they, they get to the far side of the valley. They go up the slope towards where the British are, but they still can't see them because they're on the reverse slope. And then at the last moment, the Brits stand up. Um, they're in a long, long line. Uh, and they open their musketry. And the secret of the British army was the speed of its musketry. Um, it was much faster than the, usually their enemies. I mean, it seems slow to us, only three shots a minute, but Three shots a minute was pretty deadly. And this great barrage of musketry halts the French. And at that point, Wellington releases his heavy cavalry. Uh, and the heavy cavalry charge down the slope, charge into Derlon's corps. They capture two eagles and they turn it into a rabble that just flees. So all this is going to happen between, I don't know, 11 and 12.30. What must have given Wellington some relief is that it appears that Napoleon is not trying to move around his flank. Napoleon appears to be coming straight at him. And if there's any one thing that Wellington is confident of, it's his troops' ability to defend themselves. So at least at the opening of the battle, and we've rather ignored what's happening on the right flank, where another attack is attacked the Chateau of Hougamont, but that's not getting anywhere either, that if you like the first third of the battle, Wellington will certainly feel relieved, but he isn't, it's not a great deal of relief. So yes, he's repulsed the early attacks, but he's still waiting for Blucher to arrive from the left and there's no sign of him. So Wellington will still be nervous. He said he spent the whole day looking at his watch, waiting for Blucher to arrive. His intelligence is pretty good that the Prussians are coming, but it's not like kind of specific as to the timing. Is that right? It's exactly right. Uh, what has happened is that after the Battle of Ligny two days before, Blucher has retreated and the French effectively have lost him. It was incredibly careless of them. Napoleon has sent 33,000 men under Marshal Sue to, to basically to keep him busy. And Sue has lost him. He doesn't know where Blucher is. And what Blucher has done is he's retreated directly northwards. And the French have assumed that he would in fact retreat towards Prussia and go off to the, go off to the east. Uh, and he doesn't. And Blucher is determined to reach Wellington, but he's only got bad roads to do it on and his army is somewhat disorganized as a result of Ligny. Um, and remember that the whole, the whole strategy of Waterloo is that it's an allied victory. Wellington would never have stopped on the ridge of Mont Saint Jean unless he believed Blucher would come to his aid, and Blucher would never have marched to his aid unless he thought Wellington would stay there for him. So the two commanders, who haven't had that much really to talk to each other in much time, are simply trusting each other, and and that's actually quite wonderful because in the end their hopes are justified. So Blucher is marching, but he's marching on incredibly bad roads. Um, and he's going to be late, very, very late. I think Wellington hoped he'd be there by midday, but he's going to have to wait several hours for that to happen. And if anyone, I was just thinking to myself, if anyone in the, in the whole human story was in a complicated emotional state, it was probably Wellington in the early afternoon, because not only do you have Bonaparte and the French army coming straight at you, you're kind of glancing 
you know, to the horizon all the time. He's searching the east all the time with his spyglass, looking at the, the, the woods way, way off to the east, hoping to see Prussian troops arrive. And at one point he said, the Prussians are nightfall, meaning this is my only chance. If I can survive here till night, um, he would probably then have withdrawn northwards. But his only two hopes of surviving at that point was one to just simply survive the huge attacks that Napoleon was throwing at him or else the arrival of the Prussians. Right. Well, let's move you on to your second scene, because that is in itself a great panorama of probably the early moments of the battle and the state of mind both of Wellington and Napoleon. You've then picked eight o'clock in the evening. Yeah, we're skipping the battle, most of it. Around eight o'clock that night, I think Napoleon knows he's in desperate trouble. All his hopes have, have been dashed. Not a single attack has worked, except for the capture of La Haye Sainte, which is a farmhouse on the front of Wellington's position. But every attack beyond La Haye Sainte has failed. I mean, Durlon's enormous attack on Wellington's left has failed. And then Marshal Ney leads the most beautiful troops in the world in a massive cavalry attack on Wellington's right, and that too has failed and caused horrific, horrific damage to the French. Um, the Chateau of Hougoumont is still in British hands. And now Napoleon knows that Blücher and 50,000 Prussians are approaching his right, uh, and he's desperate. So he throws in his last attack, and it's a glorious attack in some ways because it involves the Imperial Guard. And the Imperial Guard are the best troops in Napoleon's army. They're called the Immortals because they're reputed never to have lost a battle. They get paid more. They get better uniforms. They are fanatically devoted to Napoleon. And he sends eight battalions of the Guard up against Wellington's right wing, which has already been decimated by the cavalry attacks. So this is an incredibly crucial moment because even now the the day's closing napoleon can still win this battle if he can if the imperial guard can break through he can turn on the rest of wellington's line and probably cause them to flee in complete panic he then can turn his line to meet the advancing prussians who will outnumber considerably so it is an amazingly dramatic moment and it's one of the most famous passages of arms in history and surprisingly, we don't really know that much about it. Um, we'd like to know a lot more. So I think I'm going to find a nice vantage point on the ridge and watch and hope I don't get hit. What, how, what, in kind of terms of numbers, what are we talking about as the Imperial Guard goes into battle? Are we, is this hundreds, did you say? No, it's not hundreds. It's probably in this attack about 5,000 um, of the Guard attack. There's three... Uh, battalions held in reserve of the old guard. So it's eight battalions of the middle guard. And they come up the ridge in two columns. And there's already one of the things we don't know because the British all say they came in columns. Um, but it seems more likely they were actually advancing in squares. And, and that does make a difference. Um, and they must be supremely confident because they are the imperial guard. They are the undefeated, the immortals. They are the favoured troops of the French army. And not only the guards are advancing, but all along the line, um, the French are, in fact, approaching the British line. One of the criticisms made of Napoleon is that he never did what's called an all-arms attack, i.e. united cavalry, artillery and infantry in one attack. And this is the closest he's going to come to it, because not only are the eight battalions of the middle guard marching up the slope, but their artillery has advanced and is open fire on the British and all along the line, uh, the French are advancing just to hold the British where they are so they can't support the right wing. So it is an extraordinary moment. Fittingly, it's a moment where the British line will again meet either columns or squares. And there's not much difference in the effect that that will have. But you have to understand that a column, it's not tall and thin. It's an enormous brick of men. And very early on, you went back to talking about Fleury earlier, what the Revolutionary Army had discovered is that it's very difficult to move troops across ground, especially if they're in line. The line wavers and it loses cohesion and 
but you can move them in columns. So a column would be, I don't know, let's say 30, 40 men in the front rank and 40 or 50 ranks behind them. It's a solid block of men, a great brick of men that will march and it can stay together. The British much preferred to fight in lines, which lose all their muskets. So a line will always outflank a column. Napoleon's problem with fighting the British is that they are so good at musketry that they can pour an immense amount of lead straight into what is a very compact formation. And not only musketry, but also cannon fire. So this had happened again and again in the Peninsular War, that French columns had been defeated by British lines. And suddenly at the climax of the whole Napoleonic Wars, the same thing is happening again. French columns are attacking British lines. And I would have thought at that moment, although Wellington knows the reputation of the guard, he's almost certainly feeling very confident indeed. Mm, because um, you say that he was quite taciturn about, he didn't want to talk about Waterloo and he certainly didn't want to talk to writers about Waterloo, <laughs> that's for sure. But um, he did say one thing which we all have probably heard at one time or another because it's a wonderful formulation of language that you can imagine him saying it and it's that Waterloo was the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. Do you think by this point, at eight o'clock in the evening, it's... You know, as you say, he's getting more confident. We're past the moment of maximum peril. I think he is. I think, you know, I said it's the Wimbledon final. He knows he's in the third set and he's four games to or five games to two up. Um, he must have huge confidence in his infantry. Uh, and he's got a lot of British infantry on that right wing. And the right wing has already, it's been thinned out horribly. I mean, the battalions have shrunk. But he knows what's about to happen. He knows and Wellington and uh, Napoleon doesn't. Napoleon has tried to, Napoleon knows that Blucher is coming and many in the French army can see these blue uniforms way off to the west. But the Prussians, like the French, wear blue. And so Napoleon had sent messengers all along the whole French line saying, this is Grouchy, come to help us. Either 33,000 men have come to attack Wellington's left, so we'll attack his right. And a lot of the French did at that moment were very confident that they'd now won because Grouchy had arrived. In fact, Grouchy was still miles away and the blue uniforms were Prussians come to attack Napoleon. But yeah, I think Wellington must have been feeling he'd survived. I mean, he can see Grouchy's, see, sorry, see Blucher's troops coming off to his left. Some of them have already joined his line on the left flank. The rest are going, attacking directly towards Napoleon's army. And he's facing, as he said after the battle, they came on in the same old way. We saw them off in the same old way. Well, coming on in the same old way is advancing in column. And seeing them off in the same old way is meeting that column with lines of British infantry. And I think he must have felt at that moment, okay, we've got this now. All we have to do is to defeat this final attack, the attack of the Imperial Guard. Beautifully laconic, though, isn't it, that, that quotation? I mean, you can imagine the same being said of the Halifax guillotine, you know, when they came in the same way and we saw them up. It's just a, it's a, it's a nice formulation of language. But I, I just wanted to stress um, why I think this is such a great moment that you plucked out of the battle, because I know it's very difficult and there's battles are made up of these um, moments which happen all over the place. But here you seem to have isolated one which really stands as a kind of last throw of the dice would be the, the cliched way of describing because he doesn't seem to have Napoleon I mean he doesn't seem to have any more reserves after this these are his finest troops you know the people who've been with him for the longest and um, I don't know there's is there any sense of what Napoleon's temperament was like at this point of the battle because I mean I would think it was extreme frustration. He's been curiously supine in the battle. I mean, unlike Wellington, who made sure he was always at the point of the line, of his line, wherever the fighting was fiercest, so he could see what was going on. Napoleon has stayed most of the time by La Belle Alliance, which is the tavern at the centre of his ridge. And his only time that we know that he moved was to come down into the valley to see the Imperial Guard off on this attack. He's let Ney run the battle, and Ney, on the whole, has run it very badly. So I think he must be feeling extremely frustrated. I think he really was very, very confident that morning. I mean, he once said that he had 
a 90% chance of winning. Well, the 90% chance of winning is now way down. It's probably nearer 50%. And for that, he's got to depend on these eight battalions of the Guard. So I imagine it's simply one of anger and frustration that his army has not done what he thought it should do. And he knows full well that the Prussians are coming and that he's going to have to fight them as well. And if he can't beat Wellington, if he can't break through Wellington's line, then he knows that Wellington will advance. So, yes, he's, he's, he's not in a good place at all. I should let you take this story forward then. How does this particular charge of the Imperial Guard play out before Napoleon's and indeed before your own eyes? You can tell it. Well, certainly Napoleon was watching. As I said, it's split into two columns, which may well have been squares because the French were certainly worried that the British cavalry hadn't been, or at least the light cavalry hadn't been fully engaged. They wanted to defend against a cavalry attack. I think that it's probably most likely that they came up the ridge in enormous squares. The one on the French right has some initial success. Um, it attacks a brigade of British troops led by a man called General Hulkett, who's going to be badly wounded. And Hulkett's men managed to check it with their musketry. But then, for reasons that we don't really know, they seemed to panic and began to retreat. And the guard keeps coming. A Dutch brigade moves into the space and they open fire on the French. And some Dutch artillery does immense work there. And one of the survivors of Hulkett's brigade said he heard a shout and the shout was to stand turn and stand. And he says, I don't know why, but we all did. And they rally and go back and they resume firing. And now the volume of fire from the Dutch and the British is so great that that column of the Imperial Guard can't take it and begin to retreat. Meanwhile, the larger column is advancing on their left and they're facing the British guards, if you like, the finest troops in the British army. And the guards are lying down. They're sheltered by a slight mound of earth which runs along the road there. They are under artillery fire and probably howitzer fire is dropping among them. So they're, they're, they're suffering. But they wait there, lying flat in this wet, churned up soil. And the column gets closer and closer. And then finally, there's the shout to stand up, which they do. They're in four ranks. Normally, the British line was two ranks, but four ranks were safer if you thought the cavalry was in the offing. And they open fire. And again, it's this massive British musketry fire that flails into the French. And at that point, a man called Sir John Colborne, who led the 52nd, it's an Oxfordshire battalion. It was the largest battalion in Wellington's army marches his battalion forward and wheels them so that they approach the flank of the Imperial Guard. And this was an extraordinarily brave thing to do because he was in line. Um, and if there'd been French cavalry around, he would have been doomed. But he gets on their flank and he opens with musketry too. And they're now being fired on from two sides and it's simply too much for them. And the guard literally run away. Um, and at that point, Napoleon must have known the battle was completely lost because he's seen his imperial guard, his immortals, his undefeated, being defeated and now are running away. There's a really vivid bit of description of the Prussian commander Blücher, am I pronouncing that correctly, when he claims to see Napoleon jump out of his carriage, throw himself onto a horse without his sword and gallop away as his bicorn hat fell off on the battlefield, which, I mean, I don't know if that's um, verified fact or report. I think it is verified fact, yes. Yeah. So that was later in the evening. Yeah. One of the huge problems the French had is they're now running for their lives, but the only road that will take them off the battlefield goes across a very narrow bridge, I think, at the village of Janap. And, of course, an immense traffic jam forms there, and Napoleon's carriage couldn't get through, so he leapt out and got on a horse and rode off. Hello there, it's Peter here. Every week we encourage you to have a look at Colourgraph.co, which is a website operated by our friend Jordan Lloyd, the astonishingly talented visual historian. 
There you can see galleries of Jordan's colorization work from the US Capitol building in 1846 to the Beatles in 1963, which have appeared on the front covers of magazines all around the world. Do check it out. Well, today I have something more to tell you as well. Jordan and the others at Colograph have been working on a new visual history project, which will be called Unseen Histories. This new website is going to be his new platform for showcasing beautifully presented, fascinating stories from the past. It'll be going live later this week and we'll have much, much more to tell you about the pieces on Unseen History in the weeks to come. It's a project that has been long in the making and it will be really, really worth the wait. It's worth mentioning this carriage. I want to get on to our third scene in a second, but I, I liked the description of the carriage I came across, which was um, said it was his portable office. It was his bedroom. It was his dressing room, kitchen and dining room. It was exquisitely fitted out with telescopes, atlas and an inkwell and it hold all sorts of different things had all of his treasure in there so of all the vehicles um of the 19th century world that would have been a good one to have a poke around in so the spoils for somebody but let's let's leave um that second scene behind and go to your final one please which kind of rounds off the story very nicely because we're going to go back from napoleon to wellington i think Back to Wellington, who after the battle goes back to the town of Waterloo, which is a few miles northwards, and goes back to his quarters. And he's plainly in a very emotional state. He can't use his own bed because a man is dying in that bed, so he uses a camp bed. But sometime late that night, a doctor, Dr. John Hume, who's the senior surgical officer for the British Army, brings Wellington the casualty list. And he recalls that Wellington read it and cried. And he said in a voice which Hume describes as being tremulous with emotion, well, thank God I don't know what it is to lose a battle, but certainly nothing can be more painful than to gain one with the loss of so many of our friends. And later on, he was to write to a friend, I pray to God I have fought my last battle. And you could never, ever imagine Napoleon saying that. He spent the day on the ridge when the fighting was the hardest um, in the afternoon assuring his men that the victory they would gain would bring peace. And he told them again and again that they were fighting for peace. And I think his emotional state that night tells us a lot about Wellington, that he actually was, he was very good at holding his emotions in check, but he was seen to weep on more than one occasion, and this was one. And it was looking at this horrific casualty list, which really was horrific. The battle was a bloodbath. It's, I think you, you kind of anticipated one of my questions then, which was about Wellington displaying emotion. Just to like kind of reiterate that, is it really the case that he was normally quite stiff upper lip? Very stiff upper lip. I mean, again, he understood that during the battle that his men, and he was moving constantly up and down the ridge, up and among his troops, would be looking at him. And they're, what they're looking for is a sign of worry. If Wellington looks worried, we should be worried. So he took immense care not to look worried, whatever he was actually thinking. He later said that he was worried. He said that he kept glancing at his watch and then at the Prussians on nightfall. But when he speaks to his men, he, he speaks in terms of great confidence. I mean, another of his sayings on the ridge was hard pounding this gentleman. Let's see who can pound the longest, meaning we can pound them just as much as they can pound us. So, Yes, there's a lot of stiff upper lip. There's a lot of looking very, very confident. And then because there's the famous passage where right at the end of the battle, Uxbridge, who was his cavalry commander, has his leg shot away by a French cannon. He says, oh, by God, I've lost my leg. And Wellington looks at him and says, by God, so you have. Um, you know, it's very cold-blooded. Mm -hmm. But that's part of his talent. I mean, he displays his talent immensely at Waterloo. One is to keep his calm amidst absolute chaos. I mean, it's impossible for us to imagine what the noise was like. You have, what, something like 400 heavy guns firing all the time. You have musketry. You have the bands playing, at least at the beginning of the battle. You have trumpet calls. You have men shouting orders. In the final attack of the Imperial Guard, a British officer said he shouted orders so loudly that that he said the man next to me couldn't hear them. There's just so much noise. And amid that noise and that confusion and the fact that you can't see very much because the powder smoke is smothering the battlefield, 
um, Wellington keeps his calm. So one is to keep calm and the other two is to always look confident. He does that. So is it almost a, as much a triumph of personality for Wellington, that battle, as of tactics? He's obviously tactically astute. He he does exactly what he needs to do. He does. And um, even when the victory is won, he sees the French guard retreating. He sees the rest of the French following or retreating as well. So he takes his hat off, waves it around his head uh, so everyone can see it. He's in for a penny, in for a pound and orders them forward. Um, and then he gallops along the line to make sure that they are going forward, right along the line, that the remnants of his line are going to attack. And I think it was a rifleman, Johnny Kincaid, and his, his rifleman are cheering Wellington as he arrives. And Wellington tells him to stop cheering, go forward and gain your victory, he says. There was a famous occasion in the Pyrenees when um, a British army, which was not under Wellington's command, was in a very tough place. And Wellington had been fighting another battle, which is won. And he gallops across the mountains to the second army, which is very hard pressed. And when the redcoats see him arrive, they start to cheer. And he orders them not to cheer, to be quiet. And someone asked him why. And he said, well, if you allow them to cheer you one day, they'll jeer you the next. It's very stiff upper lip stuff. It is, but it's he's got an insight into the human personality there. And I think what you have done in this final scene around 10 o'clock in the evening on the Sunday is, you know, in this moment of, I suppose, emotional and physical exhaustion after, you know, everything that happened that day and the preceding night when it was wet and there was thunder and all the rest of it, you do, I suppose, get glimpses that otherwise wouldn't be revealed. So to be there at that time must have been really quite something. But I do want to like save a little bit of um, our conversation. I know we've only got a few more minutes left. I want to talk about Sharp's assassin because I think it's so tempting when we look at uh, the Battle of Waterloo. And it's a bookend. I mean, almost with the the charge of the Imperial Guard, you could say that is the end of the long 18th century because people always look at Waterloo as an ending point where we then moved into a different kind of world afterwards. But one of the points of this novel that you've written is that it wasn't all finished on that Sunday. There were odds and ends. There was a series of actions that happened afterwards. The sheer kind of passage of information across France was very higgledy-piggledy and what actually had occurred that day was uh, misunderstood. So do you want to just give us a little bit of a, um, I suppose, a summary of Sharp's assassin and how that kind of fits in with this bigger story? Well, you're right about odds and ends, and they were odds and ends. There were a few actions after Waterloo. Um, immediately after Waterloo, Wellington and Blueship decide to advance on Paris, so they're marching south. And meanwhile, the Austrians and the Russians are approaching from the east. Napoleon, the next day, claimed that he could raise 150,000 men without any trouble. He probably could have done, and he certainly had got armies intact on France's eastern frontier. Napoleon talks a very big game that he's actually going to reassemble an army and he's going to take everybody on again. In fact, he can't do that. The, the interim government of France have had enough of him, and he's forced to abdicate again. But on the way to Paris, the British fought a very sharp action at a place called Peron. And Blücher's men fought a couple more battles, larger battles. Um, but they do get to Paris and they take Paris. And at that point, really, the thing is over. So the shop's assassin is kind of based in this world afterwards. Well, it's based in Paris, mainly. And probably the drama there, which interested me, which forms, if you like, the backbone of the book, were a couple of attempts to assassinate Wellington, both of which happily failed. And one of them was very reminiscent of the gunpowder plot in England. And I found that one the most extraordinary, that the, somehow the French managed to pack gunpowder into the basement of Wellington's house where he was quartered and very nearly got away with it. 
Well, we shall leave that story to readers of the novel. The fraternity um, are at work. So that's one. I've got a, a final question before I let you go today, which is a bit of material history. We've been looking at the Battle of Waterloo, of course, and um, we always extend the opportunity to bring a memento back from these travels. So if you could have something to have in your writing office, I can see behind you, you've got a nice sword, which in itself might have featured on the battlefield with a bit of... Actually, that's Uhtred's sword. <laughs> but would, is there anything you'd like from um, the 18th of June? I actually have something from the 18th of June, so I'll be content with that, which is I've got a heavy cavalry sword, which was carried in the big attack which destroyed Durlon's corps. Um, and it hangs over our fireplace in the main house. And um, it's the same kind of sword that Sharp carries. And uh, I always wanted one, so I'm not sure my wife is terribly delighted to have a, such a weapon hanging in her living room, but she just has to put up with it. Goodness, it'd be something to stake the fire with, wouldn't it, if you uh, if were They're quite rare, the heavy cavalry swords. Um, I mean, the officers' swords were better, so they tended to be kept. But most of the heavy cavalry swords were cut down to make hay knives or whatever, so I was quite fortunate to find one. Well... What a fascinating object to think about and what a connection as well with an event which really did shape world history. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Congratulations on the new book, which I believe is out next week. And I think lots of people will be rediscovering an old friend just as you did yourself. Bernard Cornwell, thank you very much for your time and for coming on Travels Through Time. And Peter, thank you for taking me back.